If you would turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 45, and that's our text this Lord's Day as we continue to walk through God's Word together and come to these final chapters in the book of Genesis, chapters which are so vital because they help us to understand really the theology behind all of Genesis and really much of the Scripture. Uh, we've read so much in Genesis about uh, from creation to the fall through uh, this offspring that would come that would crush the head of the enemy and now that offspring, the line of it, has come down through the family of Jacob and, and as we've read about Jacob's family, we've spent a lot of time as the Scripture spends much time in the life of Joseph and in Joseph's life we see so much there to learn about suffering and if we're not careful, we get to places like this in the Scripture where we've, we've read quite a bit about something that we, we kind of want to just kind of move on. Okay, we, we've got it. Joseph suffered and God had a plan. But if we skim over these last few chapters, we, we really miss, I think, the, the foundation of what Genesis teaches us about suffering because it's here that we see God not only reconcile these things in Joseph's life, but Joseph begin to speak of how this suffering has come about and, and how does God's hand play a role in that. And so... I think it's an important text for us to look to. As we look to it, I just want to give you a, a brief update and thank you again for your prayers uh, for our family. Uh, Caroline's had a, a rough few nights, so if you would pray for her and especially for Sandy to get some rest uh, today and uh, pray for us on Thursday. We'll be going back to Cincinnati for her final surgery in this process where they'll be removing this appliance that they've put on and doing some final work on her and we'll stay the night and then be coming back uh, prayerfully on Friday so if you keep us in prayer we would appreciate that and we're so thankful again for for all the prayers up to this point uh, and for Caroline uh, if you would now let's look to God's word uh, Genesis chapter 45 uh, we're going to look at the entire chapter today verses 1 through 28 if you are able at a reverence for the word if you would stand as I read it for us this is what God's word says then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land for these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord over all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come into poverty. 
And now your eyes see, and the eyes of your brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father all my honor in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load your beast and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. And you shall eat of the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey to each and all of them. He gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. And then he sent his brothers away and they, as they departed, they said to him, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when, they, when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. If you would pray with me, church. Father, we pray. You would use this living word in our lives, Lord, that you would change us through it, that we would see the gospel in it, that we would glorify you as we study it. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you have turned on the television in the last week, if you have picked up a paper, if you have spoken with someone, you have probably talked about or heard others talk about suffering. The events of our world are signs of of evil man. They are signs of how one day everything can change. They are indications for us that there is great pain and suffering in our world. And so we turn on the news one night to see that that a plane has been shot down and that Almost 300 people have lost their lives. We turn on the news another night. We see war and suffering. And as we we see all these things as believers, we have to reconcile them with what we believe. Is God, in fact, in control? And if God is indeed in control, then why does He allow these things to happen? Does God truly love those who are His? And if so, how does He love them and at the same time allow them to suffer greatly? These are questions that have been questions Christians have asked for the entire history of the church. They're questions that all of us have sometime have asked. Not just about the news, but about our own lives. Those times, as I've mentioned, as we've studied God's Word together, when 
When we don't understand why we do what we think we're supposed to do and we think we're holding up our end of the bargain and yet it seems there's still great pain and suffering in our lives and in others' lives. And then we look around and we see people who don't seem to play by the rules, don't seem to have any concern for the things of God, and it seems like things are going just fine for them. How do we reconcile those things? How do we understand them? Well, we understand them, we reconcile them the only way that we can by looking to God's Word and what it teaches us. And in these final chapters of Genesis, there is much that is taught to us about the sovereign hand of God, about how God is the one who is in control, about words that we read later in the New Testament as they take shape, words that refer to God's people as He predestined, He elected, words that are throughout the Old and New Testament like He chose, words that indicate the great sovereign hand of God. We read in these final chapters verses that help us to understand how can this sovereign God be in control and love us and yet suffering take place. We read things in these final chapters of Genesis that help us to put these pieces together. And so as we look to this word today, I hope that you'll look to it asking the questions that we all need to ask. Lord, what does your word say? And help me to live based on what it says. Not based on what I feel, not based on what I think, but based on what the holy word of God tells us. Because when it comes to this issue of suffering, I think more than anything else, we we tend to go more with our gut and our thoughts and our feelings than with God's Word. For some of us, it's very difficult for us to accept that, that we suffer under the sovereign hand of God. And so we choose then to believe that somehow God is absent from our suffering, that God has no place in our suffering, that these things just kind of happen in and of themselves, kind of separate over here. And yet I think God's Word says, no, they're, they're all connected. And God has purpose for them. And in the end, God is good. And so as we look to that issue today, that subject today, we'll begin by looking at this first point I've put in your notes there. We need to understand, we need to view suffering in light of God's sovereignty. In order to properly understand why people suffer, what purpose is there in suffering, we need to begin by looking at it under the umbrella of God's sovereign hand, God's controlling hand, God's providence of all things and over all things. And I believe we see that and how Joseph deals with his suffering. And we pick up here in Joseph's story, as you'll remember, after much has gone on between him and his brothers. He has recognized them immediately. They did not recognize him. He puts them through a series of what we might call tests to really examine their hearts. To understand whether these men who've come to him are any different than the brothers who, over, who decades before had thrown him into that pit, had sold him into slavery. And that final test we read about last week, where Joseph arranges things so that they essentially are in a similar situation. A situation where they have Benjamin now, the favored son of their father, who is going to be enslaved, and he wants to see, are they going to just let that happen like they did with me? Or are they different men? Are they changed men? Will something different happen? And that's where we see Judah, of all people, show a repentant heart, show a changed heart, as he says he'll take Benjamin's place, as we see that these men truly have changed, they truly are repentant, and so now the table is set for Joseph to reveal himself to them. 
And that's what the text tells us he does here in chapter 45. He essentially clears the room. He gets everybody else out and he looks to his brothers and he says to them, listen, I I am your brother Joseph. And the first question he has for them is not, why did you do this to me? How could you have done this to me? His first question to them is, is my father still alive? He, he, he wants to know. His father has been in such poor health and aging as those brothers have communicated to him. Now on this final journey, is he ever going to see his father again? When you noticed here how they respond to that question in verse 3. He says, is my father still alive? But they can't answer him. For the scripture says, they were dismayed at his presence. And that word dismayed, I don't know that in our current context and the way we use that word, we fully grasp what's being said there in the, in the language here in the Hebrew, that that word indicates that they were terrified. In fact, that same word is used at other places in the Old Testament to describe the reaction of people when they see destruction coming to them, destruction about to overwhelm them, and their response to that is they are trembling in fear. And so the context here is Joseph says to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Joseph asks his brothers, is my father okay? And what do they do? They are so scared, they are so terrified, they can't even speak. And the question then would be, what are they scared of? (laughs) Well, you can imagine. You can imagine if if Joseph's story were a, a modern day movie, what would happen here? This would be the point in the movie where the plot would thicken and where the one who was the victim like Joseph would turn to his brothers and say, I'm Joseph and now vengeance is mine. And he would enact all his revenge on them for everything he had done that had been done to him. That, that, that's how our culture would respond to this. That, that, that's how our entertainment would respond to this. And yet that's not what God's word shows us. And yet we can understand why these brothers were scared because these brothers had done an evil and wicked thing to their brother. And now they're standing before him and he's as powerful as Pharaoh. (laughs) And he's already shown them that the lengths to which he can go. He's already shown them the power he has. They've already feared for their life already. And now they're probably thinking, he's been doing this just to dangle us along and now the gauntlet's going to drop. And yet that's not what happens. What happens then is Joseph doesn't take revenge. The question is, why? You think in your own life. Perhaps you've been wronged by someone. I would guess for most of us, probably not to the extent that Joseph was wronged by his brothers. (laughs) But, But some of you have suffered under the hand of another. Some of you have great pain in your life because of something someone's done to you. And everything within us And all those around us often tell us, get back, get even. And so we expect, in a sense here, Joseph to do something to say to his brothers, at least what you did was wrong and and now you're going to pay for it. But Joseph doesn't do that. And the question for us is why? And I believe the answer is found in that point that I shared with you because Joseph understands his suffering in light of the sovereign hand of God. Notice who Joseph attributes his suffering to. In verse 5, he says very clearly his brothers are responsible. He looks to them and he says, I am here because you sold me into slavery. 
He does not look to his brothers and say, you bear no responsibility. He points the finger at them and he says, listen, I'm here because of what you did. But he views what they did under the greater sovereign hand of God. Because then he goes on to make statements like verse 5. God sent me here before you to preserve life. Verse 7, God sent me here. Verse 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Verse 9, God has made me Lord over all of Egypt. You think about that for a moment. Joseph, he suffered. He suffered for a long time. He, He sat in that dungeon for over a decade in shackles and chains. He was, he was a slave. And even now, when he's been put in control of so much, and he's got such great authority, he, he's still not home. He, he's still not back with his family. He's still not where he started out at. But he is able to look at all of this and say, I am here and I have suffered because God is sovereign and He had a plan. And it's one thing to read Joseph and his story and see him say that. It's another thing for us to accept that in our lives, isn't it? It's very uncomfortable to accept that. See, it's much easier to look at our pain and our suffering and say, well, this is this person's fault and this is this sinful person's actions fault and this happened because this person did the wrong thing or this happened for this reason. But it's very difficult To look at our life when we suffer, when there's calamity, when there's pain, and to say, certainly there are people responsible, certainly there are people who may bear guilt for this, but ultimately, God is sovereign, and God has put me in this place, and God has a purpose for this. We don't seem to struggle to say that when things are good, (laughs) when things go well. But we struggle to say it when things are bad. Because again, we, we, we wrestle with, God, how can you love us and then allow this? God, how can you love us and yet bring this in our lives? But with that wrestling, we need to go to God's Word and see what does it say. And that's where we read passages like Romans eight twenty eight, which says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Now you hear that passage. For those who love God, all things work together for good. And you may hear that and say, okay, well that, that makes sense. But that's probably talking about the good stuff. You know, God takes these good things and he, He's working all these things out. And there's always light at the end of the tunnel. And, and, and things always work out for the best. But then you read the context of that passage. In Romans 8, the context is Paul writing about his suffering. And the context is Paul writing about his pain. And in the context of his pain and suffering, he's not saying, well, I went through a little bit of suffering, but then everything turned out all right." In the context of his pain and suffering, he says, you know what? Right now I'm suffering. Right now there's pain. But what I know is this. All things work together for good for those who are God's, who are called according to His purpose. See, what Paul seems to grasp in that passage is something that I think we often miss. It's that suffering is not there just so we can have kind of a a one-and-done experience with suffering. (laughs) 
And suffering is not in our lives so that we can just learn a quick lesson and have victory and move on. There's times when God brings suffering in our life and it doesn't go away. And then there's times when God brings suffering in our life and as we learn through it, then he brings even greater suffering in our life. And that's what I believe we see happen here in Joseph's life and among God's people in this passage. Point two, that God uses our suffering to prepare his people for greater suffering. See, God brings Joseph to Egypt and and God allows Joseph to suffer greatly in part so that God's people will be preserved. That's what Joseph says here and that's absolutely true. But there's a bigger picture that's developing here. There's a bigger reason for Joseph's suffering. And I think that bigger picture is God is preparing His people, the, the, the descendants of Jacob, of Israel, the Israelites, He's preparing them to suffer much greater than Joseph suffered. And He's going to use Joseph's sufferings in that preparation. Now notice what we see here in verses 16 to 23. Not so much a lot of suffering. In fact, this sounds pretty good when you read it. The report comes to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh hears what's happened, and Pharaoh's excited. Pharaoh hears about Joseph's brothers, and so Pharaoh's excited, and all his servants are excited, and they like Joseph, and Joseph likes them. And so Pharaoh says to Joseph, listen, this is good news. This is your family, and family's good. And so Joseph, what I want you to do is I want you to, to send for all your family to go get your father and all the servants and everything he has, and I want you to come to Egypt. And he doesn't just say to him, and you can live here, he says to him, and you can have the best. You can have the best land, you can have anything you want. In fact, Pharaoh says to him, you don't have to worry about a thing. I'm going to take care of you. So what does Joseph do? He does exactly what Pharaoh says here. He he sends away for Jacob. And when he sends away for him, the text tells us he sends all these goods and all these provisions That doesn't sound like great suffering, does it? But this is the beginning of a story of great suffering. See, Joseph left when he was 17, and and he goes through all this suffering and slavery and calamity up to the time of 30, and then he's promoted in the Pharaoh's house. 13 years he suffers. But God's laying the groundwork through the life of Joseph for his people to come to Egypt. And while things will be well at first, things will sour very quickly. And they'll be suffering for a lot more than 13 years. In fact, the scripture tells us that for over 400 years they would suffer. In fact, you just go a few chapters past Genesis, or in, just in the first chapter there of Exodus, and you read this. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. And so then Exodus details how that Pharaoh, that king, he brings suffering on the people of God. And that is no surprise to us. In fact, before Genesis 45, long before that, all the way back in Genesis 15, if you'll remember what God said to Abram, Abraham, He said to Abram, listen, here's the big picture. And He told him exactly what was going to happen. And He told Abraham then that the people would suffer for 400 years in Egypt. 
That's Joseph's great-grandfather. I wonder, though, if that lesson, if that message, that word from God got passed down. Because <laughs> I don't think Joseph's thinking at this point, okay, you know, this is probably it. <laughs> this is probably the beginning of something bad. No, I think Joseph's thinking, okay, I'm done. I, I've suffered, and, and now things are coming together, and now this is going to be good, and now victory's here. And yet what God is doing in the big picture here is he's preparing the people of God to suffer even greater. And friends, that, that's the reality of our suffering too. And you've got to be careful because if you view suffering and pain and calamity as this one and done, as if somehow we, we all are allotted in life some portion in which we're going to suffer, then you're setting yourself up for a great disappointment and you're setting yourself up for misery. Because oftentimes it seems like while some may not suffer much, it seems that at other times there's those who suffer and they just suffer more and more and more. And then the reality is, is it's not just about us and our suffering. God uses our suffering in preparation for his people. And that's why your suffering, my suffering, they don't just belong to us. It's not just mine to go through what I'm going through. It's not just yours to go through what you're going through. God has that suffering in your life, I believe, for the life of this people, the church. And God uses your suffering to prepare others for what may be coming in their life. And what may be coming for them may be much greater than what is there for you. And perhaps there is something much greater that is coming in your life. We don't know. But what the church is called to do is to come and suffer together and rejoice together. To be in pain together, to be glad together, to do all these things together. And then God is using all these things for his glory and his purpose. And you know, sometimes that challenge I mentioned of trying to, to, to understand and reconcile that God is sovereign when we're suffering, you know, sometimes that's easier to do when we look at other people's suffering. And sometimes God uses other people's suffering so we can kind of step back and observe and say, okay, it's got to be hard, but, but I know God's hand is over it so that when it happens to us, we might understand that. I can remember in the months before Caroline was born, I spent a lot of time in children's hospitals. And up to that point, I hadn't spent a whole lot of time in children's hospitals. But it just seemed like family after family after family, suffering came and hard things came. And I remember sitting by countless hospital beds and holding hands with couples in our church and praying over their children, some of whom never left that hospital alive, and reminding them that God is faithful. Reminding them of what God's Word teaches. He has a purpose for all suffering, reminding him that we might not have all the answers, we may not understand these things, but we serve a gracious and loving God who in the end all things will be made new. And I had no idea that, that God was using that, not just for those families. God, I think, foundationally was using that in my life because he was preparing Sandy and I for what was coming in ours. And that's what he does for us. And I believe that's what he's doing here in Joseph's life. He, he's using what... For most of us would be, okay, this is the greater suffering. I mean, 13 years, this is a long time. But he's using that so that God's people might be prepared later, hundreds of years into slavery, as they're there gathered around with their children. And as their kids are saying to them, Mommy, Daddy, how much longer? Mommy, Daddy, why is God allowing this to happen? So that they might look and say, Will you remember about Joseph? 
You remember what God did in his life? Son, daughter, that's our God. And God's faithful and he's made no promise to us of how this will work out. But, but in the end, he has made a promise. We don't know the timing, but we know the end. And as he was faithful to Joseph, he'll be faithful to us. But if we don't ever wrestle with these questions, we don't ever see that. And I think sometimes we don't see it because we're so focused on ourselves and on the things of this world that we miss out on the bigger picture. And I think God uses our suffering to remind us of the big picture. And that's the last point I've put in your notes there. Seeing suffering in light of God's sovereignty helps us then to live with an eternal perspective. It helps to take our minds, our focus off of this world and put it on the one to come. And it helps us to live in light of eternity. We see that, I believe, here in Joseph's life, specifically in the life of his father, Jacob, Israel. Because notice what happens here. So, so Joseph follows the Pharaoh's command and he sends all these provisions to his father and he sends his brothers on and, and notice his parting instructions to them in verse 24. Do not quarrel on the way. And why would Joseph need to say that? We, can you imagine the conversation that would be going on on the way? 20 years ago, they deceived their father. 20 years, 22 years I think at this point, they have been living with this deception. And now they are going back, bearing good news, but needing to bear a repentant heart. See, their repentance doesn't end with showing the fruit of repentance to Joseph. Now they've got to go back and they've got to go to their father. And in telling their father that Joseph is alive, they've got to explain to him what happened years ago. You can imagine his first question when they say Joseph is alive. Where'd the bloody cloak come from? (laughs) I thought you said he was killed by animals. You can imagine then the quarreling that could have come between these brothers as they are journeying for days home and they begin to quarrel with one another. Reuben saying to the others, well, I knew this was wrong and you guys did this and I was the one who went back to get him. And you can imagine maybe Judah now repentant, now changed, but at the same time wrestling with sin. Saying, well, you know what? You guys wanted to kill him. At least I just sold him. You can imagine them going back and forth and back and forth. Well, this wasn't my idea. This was your idea. Well, this was my idea. This was your idea. I mean, you think about the context of our own lives. You think about our kids. (laughs) Some of the plans they come up with that seem like great ideas. And then when it sours, well, it wasn't my idea. (laughs) She told me to do it. On a much bigger picture, I think that's what we've got going on with Joseph's brothers here. And so Joseph says to him, listen, I don't want you guys quarreling I want you guys with repentant hearts to go to my father and I want you to be honest with him. And the scripture doesn't tell us about that conversation, but you can imagine that conversation. As they now have to share with their father, good news, bad news. Good news is good news. Joseph is alive. Bad news is, dad, we've been lying to you for a long, long time. And we did a wicked, evil thing. And in all these years, all this has happened because of what, what we did to our brother. Again, the scripture doesn't tell us everything that goes on there, but we, I think we can see there's good reason for Joseph to tell them not to quarrel. And so they get there, they share this then with Jacob, and notice how Jacob responds. 
Uh, initially, he doesn't. He can't believe it. It's hard for him to accept it. And then as it sinks in, think of the challenge that was now before him. See, Joseph has sent to Jacob provision, and Joseph has said to his father, I, I want you to come here. Where is here? Here is Egypt. Where is Jacob now? Jacob's in the land of promise. Think about that for a moment. For Jacob's adult life, the promised land was where he wanted to be. Even during the time he's away and all that debacle with Laban and his daughters and the wives, he is focusing on, I want to get back to the promised land. It is the land of promise. It is the land of inheritance. It is the land he will see himself dying in and being buried in. It is the land he will imagine himself living out his dying breath in. And now he's received some good news, but he's also received a challenge that I'm not sure anything could have prepared him for. He's being asked to leave the promised land. He's being asked to go die in Egypt. Because at his age, his context, even what he says in his own words here, he knows there's no coming back. And so Jacob has a choice here. You know, Jacob could have said, that's great news, boys, and I'm going to deal with y'all, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to go get Joseph and I want you to get him out of Egypt, and I want you to bring him here, because this is where he's supposed to be. Why didn't Jacob do that? Well, perhaps Jacob did remember the words of his grandfather, Abraham. And perhaps in his dying days, Jacob remembers the plan of God is greater than his plan. And that God's sovereign hand, God's sovereign will, God's providence had already dictated people are going to suffer. And maybe Jacob, in his final days, was willing to live his life and make decisions not based on what he wanted and based on the temporal and based on the here and now and based on what he always thought would happen. But maybe in this moment, in the latter part of Jacob's life, he's willing to make a decision based on eternity, based on what... God would have him do based on what would give God the greatest glory. And I think that presents to us, friend, a challenge as we consider our own suffering. Because when we suffer, we cling to the things of this world and we hold tightly to them. When we suffer, we, we revert back to the things we can control and we can grasp and we can hold on to and we can change. And yet in those moments, greater than any other perhaps, God is saying to us, let go. Trust me and live in light of eternity. And that is a hard thing to do. I'll give you an example of where I've seen this recently. And this isn't anyone necessarily specifically in this room but if it is it is you know the recent news and suffering and it's terrible of, of planes going down i've heard on more than one occasion we need to get those guys home from poland and of course with the other airline malaysian airlines i've heard well i don't think we need to be going there right now here's my question to that Thirty-four thousand people die in automobile accidents in our country every year how come we don't call our friends who are about to go on vacation and say, you really don't need to go? You really ought to stay home. The roads are not a safe place. 
How come when someone has a heart attack in a fishing boat, we say, well, they died doing what they loved. But when someone suffers on the other side of the ocean for the sake of the gospel, we say, what a shame. Maybe it's because our eyes are on the wrong thing. And maybe it's because our hearts are set so much on the things of this world and that which we think we can control that we've forgotten about the big picture. Perhaps God's word today is reminding us of that big picture and the need to live in light of it. That there's a sovereign God who is in control and if His will is that I die in a plane on a mission trip, then for His glory I will die in a plane on a way to a mission trip. And I would rather live my dying day preaching the gospel of Jesus than laying in a hospital bed because I ate too many Twinkies. But friends, that is something that comes from God's Word. It does not come from our world. And if we are not careful, we live so much in this world and we keep so much focused on it that we forget the big picture. And we forget that our suffering is temporary. And that there's a day and a time when we will suffer no longer. We forget that this world is not our home. This is not it. And there's a world to come that is. We forget that God has a great plan. And it's not just for Bloomfield Baptist Church. It's for 7.1 billion people alive today. And that plan will come to fruition as people are faithful to go to the nations and preach the gospel. But, but missions is not the only application here. I think there's many. I think any point in your life, any decision in your life, needs to be made in light of eternity. And our, our heart tells us so often to make it in life of the here and now. And so for some of you today, you're, you're wrestling with a decision And if you're like most of us, you're making that decision based on what the spreadsheet says and and based on what makes the most fiscal sense and based on on what it is maybe you desire. And perhaps God wants you to put into that equation, into that spreadsheet, what it is He desires and what would bring Him the greatest glory. And sometimes what brings Him the greatest glory isn't what benefits us financially the most. And sometimes what it is that brings Him the greatest glory isn't what makes us the happiest and the most excited. And you know what? Sometimes it is. But we have to ask the question, God, what would you have me do? God, how can I live in light of your glory and not my own? God, what is your plan? And in the midst of suffering, to see it in light of eternity. And that there will be a day when this was a blink. And while suffering may seem perpetual now and that just goes on and on and on and you can't remember a time when it wasn't there, There'll be a time when you can't remember when it was there. And we're to live in light of that for the glory of God and to remember there is one who left his comfort to suffer. There is one who left the eternal presence, mercy, grace, goodness, heaven with God that he might come and suffer. Why? So that we and others might live. That is the gospel of Christ, and that is the call he's placed on our life. And that is the call he has for each of us today. The question is, will you, will I respond to it? I pray that we will, if you would pray with me to that end. Father God, we ask that you would encourage us through your word today to live in light of eternity and to see that there's purpose in suffering 
And ultimately, Lord, help us to reconcile suffering by seeing that you are in control, that you are sovereign, that you're providential. Lord, you're not absent from these things. Lord, our suffering doesn't take you by surprise. You're, you're not shocked. According to your word, you, you have purpose in it. So, Lord, help us to see that and help us to see that in light of eternity. And whatever it is you call us to. Lord, I pray for people here this morning. I don't know what's going on in everybody's hearts and minds. I barely know what's going on in mine. But Lord, you bring us all through so many things that we might focus on you and your word and eternity. And so, Lord, help us that to be our focus today. Help us as we sang already this morning. When trials come, when suffering comes, to, to look towards that day, to long for that day of the return of Christ. And between this day and that, Lord, Help us to proclaim your goodness and your glory. Lord, help us to take our eyes this morning off of ourselves and put them on you. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.